the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. Yesterday in the Atlantic, Dr. Oren penned the coming Middle East conflagration, which uh, immediately became the subject of an extended conversation on the Salem Radio Network editorial board call. And I think anyone who concerns themselves with U.S.-Israeli relations and especially with the state of Israel and its security will want to go read the coming Middle East conflagration because what it says basically is war, winter is coming. War is on the horizon with Iran. Dr. Oren, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Good to be back. Uh, I, I don't. I, I think it's fair to call you anything but an alarmist. But this article is quite the alarm in the night. Is that fair? One has to sound that alarm, and uh, and I'm not the only one sounding it. I may be the only one sounding it on the page of the Atlantic, but in closed rooms in the Israel Defense Forces, in our National Security Council, uh, believe me, they're looking at scenarios very, very similar to the one I described in that article uh, of a regional war which is every bit as big and potentially costly as the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And, and that's where I want to begin, not with the hostility. We could begin with a headline from the New York Times this morning about the massive demonstrations in Baghdad against Iran. More pressure on Iran as the, the Sunni and Shia populations of Baghdad rise up against the regional would-be hegemon. But let's let's just stick with the, the obvious part, which is if one of the miscalculations occurs, one of the accidents that often inspire breakout of war happens, and there are, there are many in detail in your article, the first day of full-scale combat looks like what, Michael Lauren? It looks like this. Um, Israel, Greg, we don't take credit for this, but Israel acts to prevent Iran from establishing itself militarily uh, in Syria uh, with bases, rocket sites, airfields, uh, even Lebanon, and uh, it has been reported to you also in Iraq. Um, one of these operations triggers an Iranian response because Iran feels that there's really no deterrence and America no longer uh, is standing beside its Middle East allies as it once did, and Iran could get away with striking back. Israel then retaliates, and it snowballs. It mushrooms, whatever metaphor you want. And before you know it, uh, missiles are raining down on the state of Israel. Now, the, the Iran has moved in recent years to surround Israel with a belt of missiles. It's 130,000 rockets in the hands of Hezbollah in Lebanon, missiles in Syria, missiles in Iraq, missiles in Yemen that can reach the state of Israel, and missiles in Iran itself. The IDF estimate is for anything between 1,000 and 4,000 rockets per day. And with all due credit to uh, Iron Dome, and I was very proud of having brought the funding from Iron Dome from the United States, uh, it's 90% effective, but for every 100 rockets, 10 are going to get through. But the enemy also has precision-guided rockets that can outfox Iron Dome and hit our airport. It'll close our airport. It'll hit our, air, it'll hit our oil 
refineries, our ammonia factories. Um, it will close down our electrical grids and our major ports through which all of our, our food is imported. And millions of Israelis will be in bomb shelters. That's on the first day. And and you do then walk through the escalation, but I want to focus on if only 10% of the missiles get through, the casualties in Israel will be unlike any Israel has suffered, ever. And the response that would then be obligatory on the IDF and, and the political leadership, whoever it might be after this ghastly deadlock is over, would also be obligatory. And that raises the question, which I had at the end of reading your piece in The Atlantic, Aren't we on the edge of preemptive action by Israel? Don't we have to be? That begs the question, preemptive action against what and where? Uh, because we are an address, Hugh, okay? Those rockets have an address. To at whom, to whom do we strike back? Um, the 130,000 rockets in the hands of Hezbollah, for example, are embedded deeply under 200 villages in southern Lebanon. They're in the houses, Hugh. A house has a a missile in the living room. The roof opens up. The missile gets fired. If we strike back, we're going to have to strike back at the village and blow up the house with the family in it, which will expose us then on the third day of the war to Security Council condemnations of disproportionality, uh, of war crimes. And uh, the enemy will try to achieve um, economic strangulation through Israel through blockades and sanctions. But now, now, Dr. Oren, uh, just to use a World War II, by the way, if you, any of you Steelers fans out there don't know, Dr. Oren is an award-winning historian. In World War II, uh, a lot of people grew frustrated, and none more than those in the camps and those who were being hunted, with America going first to North Africa, and then America going to Sicily, and then America going to Italy, and then finally crossing into Northern Europe to drive to Berlin. The problem here is not Southern Lebanon. The problem here is Tehran. So when I talk about peremptory action, I'm talking about taking the war to the mullahs. Maybe not with missiles, maybe with cyber, maybe with what uh, author Michael Pillsbury calls the assassin's mace that China is developing to use against the United States. Any number of, uh, of technological uh, weaponry that can bring that regime down. Isn't that what has to be being discussed at the highest levels today? What the Saudis would call hitting, cutting off the head of the snake. Yes. And I don't think we can rule it out. And, and the article makes that clear, that eventually, or even in the first phase, or in, in one of the early stages, that we're going to have to uh, direct our defensive message against uh, Tehran itself. Um, and moreover, keep in mind, um, the Iranians have a missile called the Shahab-3, uh, which can reach Tel Aviv. And they have hundreds of these. So you know, by perforce, we're going to have to react to that. And we can react by various means at our disposal. Israel is a, is a world leader in, in cyber defense. Uh, an interesting statistic, 20% of all the investment in the world in cyber uh, defense uh, is in the state of Israel. So we do have, uh, I, I think, prodigious uh, capabilities. And uh, we also have conventional um, capabilities. We're going to have to harness all of these in order to defend ourselves. Now, in the article, you said the most important question other than when does the war begin and how does Israel act either before or after day one of a full-scale war, is what will America do? And you're fairly confident we'll do what we usually do, which is resupply Israel with their ammunition, uh, provide legal cover, provide diplomatic support. But the real question is, what will American troops do? And then you you raise the question of what about American political leadership? I know where the president is on this. I, I, I know where the secretary of state is. I know where 
leaders of the defense community like Tom Cotton are. I know the new national security advisor is a strong friend of Israel. If if war is going to come, you actually couldn't hope for a better group of of people in charge of America's response than are presently at the controls, could you? You could not, and I do have full faith in them, but um, the United States and the American people have proven that they are tired of Middle Eastern wars. I've looked very carefully at the response to uh, the president's decision on the withdrawal from Syria, other withdrawals, and, um, and the question is, will the American people want to be involved actively in a Middle Eastern conflict? What I mean actively that is American forces actually engaging in combat uh, for the benefit of an American ally. And that's a very crucial question. And it's a crucial question that Israelis have to ask themselves. Um, what, and here's a, here's a word that doesn't translate very well, well into Hebrew. Uh, what can we bank on? What can we bank on? So I, I, in the article I mentioned that there are three traditional areas in which Israel, which is the United States, you traditionally aids Israel in wartime, as you mentioned, providing us with um, resupply of ammunition, uh, defending us in the Security Council, for example, and the day after. Uh, United States involved in mediation, troop withdrawals, uh, UN peacekeeping forces. Um, the United States has been instrumental in all these areas, really going back to 1956 to the Suez Crisis. Um, but Could you the- imagine, can you imagine Israel acting without notifying the United States first that was going to act in a preemptive strike such as 1967 or 1956? Um, that's an interesting question. It depends on what were the circumstances of that preemptive strike. Um, I think there's, there's a level of trust between the two countries that exists uh, between no two countries in the world, other two countries in the world, and I say that with, with deep authority. Um, and I think that, uh, generally speaking, you know, is, Israel has informed uh, the United States uh, of its intentions. Uh, we had a very difficult time during the the, uh, the Obama years, I must tell you, that when our forces did act against Iran in Syria, and we ne- never took credit for this because we didn't want to push the Syrians and the Iranians in a position where they were publicly embarrassed and they had to react. Uh, every time we acted, the next day it was in the newspaper. Somebody in Washington leaked it. Yeah, somebody, there are opponents, of, there are both isolationists in, inside the Beltway and there are opponents of Israel inside the Beltway, and there are some in Congress, as you well know. But the question is, do you think the price would be willing to pay if you didn't give this president a heads up, either through the secretary of state, this national security advisor or one of his good friends that or your ambassador? Ambassador Friedman is very close to the president. Is it worth risking a non heads up? I don't think so. And I, think- I don't think so either. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's very, very hypothetical. But the nature of our relationship with this administration is so close and so intimate. Um, I think beyond even the, the unparalleled intimacy of our strategic relationship, our defensive alliance, and this is the, the deepest and most multifaceted alliance which the United States has had with any foreign power in the post-World War II period, now it is unprecedentedly deep and multifaceted. Uh, that, to me, would suggest that uh, Israel would keep the United States very much informed. All right, I'll be right back with Dr. Michael Oren. Don't go anywhere except over to the Atlantic to read his article, uh, which I actually will shake you, and it should. Be right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. As I said, Dr. Michael Oren is my guest from Israel today. Thank you for joining me early, Dr. Oren. Let me talk to you about um, what we were saying before the break, if, if war were to come, the American response. I know the Secretary of State has been over to Tel Aviv very recently. I was there with John Bolton in January. I'm sure 
the new National Security Advisor, O'Brien, will be there shortly if he hasn't been there already. And I'm, I'm quite certain that the delegations keep coming. Do you think America has any idea of how close to the brink the Middle East is, generally speaking? I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And our intelligence communities, our militaries communicate uh, continuously, um, again, on a, on a at very intimate level. Uh, they do. Um, what is unique about this particular moment is the double-edged sword of American involvement in the Middle East. On one hand, um, this administration has withdrawn from the nuclear accords. It has reimposed punishing sanctions. And the Iranian regime believes it has no choice. It's not going to negotiate under President Trump's humiliating terms, what they see as President Trump's humiliating terms. So the only alternative they have is to be disruptive, is to prove to the United States that it can exact a price in terms of Middle East instability. So they will interfere with uh, shipping in the Gulf. They will send cruise missiles into Saudi Arabia. They will down an American drone. And if that doesn't get the president to lift the sanctions, the Iranians will move against Israel because they know that's a very, very sensitive point. So that creates a situation already where the Iranians are posed to engage in aggression against Israel. But the flip side of this is the meltdown, as they see it, of American deterrence with the a refusal of this administration to react to that attack uh, on Saudi Arabia, at least in a, in a military sense, in a public military sense, to react to the downing of the drone, to withdraw uh, militarily from Syria, and signaling its willingness to negotiate uh, a new nuclear accord. Now, the Iranians see that as weakness, and they feel that they are not being deterred anymore. So they have every interest in going to war, and they have no deterrence preventing them from going to war. So they see it. And that is a very explosive, combustive, combustible situation. They also do not, I believe, in Tehran, what I like to call speak Trump. They don't really understand this president at all. And the fact that he gives you a couple of passes doesn't mean that you get a third. It means, in fact, you won't get a third. I think people should understand that, that that I hope Iran understands that. But here's my my bottom line question. I've said I don't want to embarrass you, but I've said you and Ron Dermer are sort of strategic assets for Israel because you speak the American lingo, as Joe Biden likes to say. Nobody speaks the lingo better than I do. And you can write these articles and talk this way. But unless you get a government that actually is an ability to act, it doesn't much matter. And is there going to be a national unity government? Or are we going back to the polls for a third time? And let me add, if that happens, are you going to stand? I believe there will. I believe that the, the, the situation that neither party, neither blue and white, or the good wants to go to it for a third round. Moreover, there's this worsening strategic situation. Every, the people up top know this, and you don't want to be caught in a in a war, to say it you know bluntly, uh, without having a government. And um, and you know the, the Middle East is not going to wait while we figure out our our political difficulties. So I believe at the end of the day there will be a national unity of government. The big question: Who's going to be prime minister first? Because of Prime Minister Netanyahu's legal difficulties, it is imperative that he be first. Because under Israeli law, uh, any minister who is indicted must resign, with one exception, if you're the prime minister. And if you're a prime minister, you can defend yourself while in office. Therefore, uh, Netanyahu will insist on being prime minister first.
So let me close on. What is the reaction to your piece? Because in an ordinary situation, a Benny Gantz or someone like that would say, look, the situation is such, you go first, Netanyahu, then retire, I'll take over, we'll work together, we'll get five years of a government, and we'll organize for what is coming. That would be the ordinary situation. Your article would be an accelerant. Is that, in fact, what's happening? I think that is, in fact, what's happening. I would hope that the administration would table its peace uh, proposal, and this is long-awaited, and it keeps on getting delayed, but it's important to table it now, Hugh, because it can serve as a glue. Um, it can serve as sort of a force majeure. The two parties can say, well, we disagree on so many things, but here's an historic opportunity to work with the United States to reach a regional peace agreement. And wouldn't it be tragic, to say the least, to miss this opportunity because of political squabbles? So, so by tabling it, let's explain that for the Steelers fans, Michael Oren. You mean publish it and put it out there, whatever, whatever its status is. And it had some support in Bahrain. It's got some support among uh, the emerging entente in the Middle East. It, it, but you just mean publish it. Yes, publish it and follow it up. The Palestinians were rejected because they've rejected every piece or, or a proposal going back to the 1930s. They actually don't have yes in their vocabulary. But if... Israelis accept it, if Saudis accept it, if Bahrainis accept it, we're in a different ballgame, and it will enable all of our regional friends and allies to stand together publicly against Iran, and it will send an incontrovertible message uh, to Iran. So the two, the two issues that seemingly are separate, peace and Iran, are actually linked. Uh, thank you, Dr. Oren, for joining me. We'll push this out far and wide so people pay attention to it. Come back soon and continue to explain. I hope you're right about that unity government. I, I suspect you're wrong, but I hope you're right. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.